Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Yesterday, Theresa May and her Brexit deal went down to a crashing parliamentary defeat. Now the wheels start turning on what's next. May faces a no-confidence vote. She's expected to survive this afternoon. There was a lot of talk about what's next this morning in Parliament, and we're going to play some excerpts now and then talk with the BBC's Gary O'Donoghue. Here is a clip from Question Time this morning. Order. Questions to the Prime Minister. Charlie Elphick. Thank you. Um, you will know, Mr Speaker, and the Prime Minister will know that I first sought election to this House because I believed in more jobs, lower taxes, a stronger economy, and more investment in the public services on which we all uh, rely. And does she agree that since 2010, Conservative governments have delivered time and again for the British people? And the biggest threat to that is sat on the opposition front bench with a leader whose policies would mean less jobs, higher taxes, a weaker economy and less investment in our public services. My my honourable friend is absolutely right. What have we seen under the Conservatives in government? We've seen 3.4 million more jobs. That's more people earning an income, earning a wage, able to provide for their families. We've seen more children in good and outstanding schools, more money into our National Health Service. What would put that in danger? A government led by the right honourable gentleman, more borrowing, more taxes, more spending, fewer jobs. Jeremy Corbyn! Thank you, Mr Speaker, thank you. May I start by correcting the record? Last night, I suggested this was the largest government defeat since the 1920s. I would not wish to be accused of misleading the House. Because I've since been informed that it is, in fact, the largest ever defeat for a government in the history of our democracy. So, Mr Speaker... Shortly after the Prime Minister made her point of order last night, her spokesperson suggested the government had ruled out any form of customs union with the European Union as part of a reaching out exercise. Can the Prime Minister confirm that's the case? Can I say to the right honourable gentleman that the exercise that I indicated last night is, as I said, about listening to the views of the House, about wanting to understand the views of parliamentarians, so that we can identify what could command the support of this House and deliver on the referendum. And what the Government wants to do is, first of all, to ensure that we deliver on the result of the referendum. That's leaving the European Union. And we want to do it in a way that ensures we respect the votes of those who voted to leave in that referendum. That means ending free movement. It means getting a fairer deal for farmers and fishermen. It means means opening up new opportunities to trade with the rest of the world. And it means keeping good ties with our neighbours in Europe. Jeremy Corbyn. Mr Speaker, my question was about the customs union. The Prime Minister seems to be in denial about that, just as much as she's in denial about the decision made by the House last night. I understand the business secretary told business leaders on a conference call last night, we can't have no deal for all the reasons you've set out. Can the Prime Minister now reassure the House, businesses and the country and confirm that is indeed the government's position that we can't have no deal? I think that the point that the business secretary is making and that he has made previously is that if you don't want to have no deal, you have to ensure that you have a deal. Now, I will give this. I will give this to. 
I will, I will say this to the right honourable gentleman. There are actually two ways of avoiding no deal. The first is to agree a deal, and the second would be to revoke Article 50. Now, that would mean staying in the European Union, failing to respect the result of the referendum, and that is, and that is something that this government will not do. Minister hasn't answered on a customs union, hasn't answered on on no deal, and continues to spend 4.2 billion of public money on a no deal scenario. Yeah. Can't you understand? Yesterday, the House rejected her deal. She needs to come up with something different than that. In denial on a customs union, in denial on no deal, in denial on the amount of money being spent preparing for no deal, in denial on last night's result, and even the UN rapporteur on poverty says the government is... Well, Mr Speaker, Mr Speaker, it's very, it's very telling, very telling indeed, that as soon as I mention the report of the UN rapporteur who said the government was in a state of denial about poverty in Britain, Tory MPs start jeering. Tell that to people queuing up at food banks. But I say to the right honourable gentleman, he says, he talks about being in denial. The only person in denial in this chamber is him because he has consistently, consistently failed to set out what his policy on Brexit is. I said to him last week, I said to him last week that uh, he might do with a lip reader. I think when it comes to his Brexit policy, the rest of us need a mind reader. Mr Speaker, the Prime Minister is very well aware that we want there to be a customs union with the EU. She seems to be in denial about that. She promised to tackle burning injustices. She's made them worse, as Windrush showed. More homelessness, more children in poverty, more older people without care, longer waits at A&E, fewer nurses, rising crime, less safe streets, cuts to children's education. This government has failed our country. It cannot govern, cannot command the support of most people facing the most important issue at the moment, which is Brexit. They failed again and lost the vote last night. Isn't it the case, Mr Speaker, that with every other previous Prime Minister faced with the scale of defeat last night, they would have resigned and the country would be able to choose the government that they want? Honourable gentleman, in that uh, peroration, talked about the importance of the issue of Brexit that is facing this country. Later today, we will have, we're going to have the no confidence debate. He has been calling for weeks for a general election in this country, and yet on Sunday, when he was asked in a general election, would he campaign to leave the European Union, he refused to answer. Not twice, not three times, but five times he refused to answer. So on what he himself describes as the key issue facing this country, he has no answer. The Leader of the Opposition, the Leader of the Opposition, has let anti-Semitism run riot in his party. weaken our security and wreck our economy and we will never let that happen.
That's Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn going at it at question time this morning. The no-confidence debate that Theresa May spoke of is ongoing, and we're going to hear a quick clip from that as well. Ian Blackford. Mr. Speaker, Scotland will never, never, not ever forget or will we forgive the utter contempt shown to our nation by this Prime Minister and the government. Mr. Speaker, the Prime Minister and her government cannot escape the reality. Her government has led to political collapse in this country, hamstrung. This government is completely frozen in its own failure. We have reached a dangerous impasse. With the clock ticking down, we need to remove this shambolic Conservative government, extend Article 50, and yes, give the people of the United Kingdom a say. Neil Parrish. It's a great pleasure to speak in this debate. I have absolutely full confidence in this government and I shall be voting against this motion tonight. As I've been recently surveying canvassing in Axminster, in Seaton, in Tiverton, in Columpton and many of my other towns, I I am amazed at the true support for the Prime Minister out there on the street. It really is quite amazing. They recognise that she is a lady who has taken on an almost impossible job, Mr Speaker, to actually fulfil the referendum result. Thank you very much indeed, Mr Speaker, and I'm grateful for the chance to speak in this debate this afternoon, and I thought the essence of our argument was laid out with force and passion and eloquence by the Leader of the Opposition this afternoon. The truth is the Prime Minister is charged this afternoon with the greatest political failure in modern times. On the most important question that this country faces, she has secured the biggest defeat that our country's parliament has ever delivered. That, Mr Speaker, alone should be grounds for her to go. How on earth, how on earth does she think she is going to command a majority in this house? when she cannot command a majority on the biggest question of the day. But the truth is, Mr Speaker, and the Leader of the Opposition made this point eloquently this afternoon, her failure of leadership stretches well beyond the failure of her policy on Brexit. Laura Pidcock. Mr Speaker, if ever there were an advert for why we need a general election and why we have no confidence in this government, the speeches on the opposite side have been desperate. They are desperate to denigrate the Labour Party because they are scared of the powerful arguments of the leader of the opposition. And when members go through that lobby tonight to say that you have confidence in this government, you are voting, sorry, they are voting for more chaos, more austerity. The members will be stepping over all of the children who do not have food in their bellies when they go to schools, stepping over the pensioners who can't afford to heat their homes and stepping over the homeless people on their streets. It means you could not care less about them. This country, our communities, working people deserve so much better. We deserve a different direction and fast. We need a general election and get this lot out now. And that's an excerpt from the no-confidence debate that's ongoing in the British Parliament. There's expected to be a vote later this afternoon. Theresa May is expected to survive. We are going to talk about Brexit and what's next with Gary O'Donoghue. He is the BBC's Washington correspondent. He served as their Westminster correspondent for years. Thanks for joining us, Gary O'Donoghue. Hey, Jerome. 
You know, we heard a lot of uh, rhetoric there in those excerpts. Um, one of the things we heard was about Jeremy Corbyn not having a idea what he was really all about on Brexit. He doesn't have a plan. And there's been a lot of people, uh, acu- you know, he had strategic ambiguity there for a while. But eventually, does he have to come up with something? Yes, he does, but he probably only has to come up with it at the right time. And in, in, in that extent, that's what oppositions do. They're there to oppose. Uh, and if they put up their, their sort of ideas uh, too soon, they just get shot down. We see, you see that uh, in American elections as well. So I think he would argue that it's been up to the government to produce a plan that Parliament will back. Uh, the government's plan has been voted down, not just voted down, but absolutely crushed last night. The the, the deal to get out of the EU has been crushed by uh, I mean, 230 votes. I mean, that's a huge, huge humiliation for a sitting government. Uh, and that's why he's put down this no confidence vote today. We think she and people will ask quite rightly, well, how could she lose so badly yesterday and be, we'd be so sure she's going to win today? Well, that's because her party uh, definitely don't want the other lot in charge. So they will back her today, as will some of the Irish MPs uh, from Northern Ireland, the DUP, who support Theresa May's government and she will get through and then we will go through Jeremy, a, next, a few days where Theresa May is going to try and talk to opposition party MPs to try and find something that parliament will vote for but she's already drawn, drawn a whole load of red lines saying I'm not going to have accept something that involves a second referendum, I'm not going to accept something that involves a kind of customs union uh, with the EU I'm not going to accept something that delays Brexit so she's boxing herself into a corner as well as saying we need to come up with a uh, further compromise. Well, is that something that eventually Jeremy Corbyn thinks works to his favor? His strategy, um, if he's not going to say what he's for and he's going to let the country go out of uh, the European Union with no deal and see a recession and see the country get hurt, and then he'll get a a better chance at uh, winning power. He will get a no-confidence vote that he can win once the country is in a really flaming out. So Labour's Labour's explicit policy is that there should be a general election now because the government has proved itself, it says, incompetent in negotiating a good deal or a deal that can can be passed by Parliament. So that's why they've got this no-confidence vote tonight because were the Prime Minister to lose tonight, she would have to resign. There is then, under our our constitutional arrangements, a period of 14 days in which someone else gets a chance to form a government. But if that can't happen, then there's a a general uh, election. However, if he doesn't get his confidence vote in an hour's time, which we all think, uh, there will be a lot more pressure with inside his own party to, to then move on to the idea of a second referendum. He's been reluctant to wed himself to that for a number of reasons. One, that the Labour Party is, you know, split in many ways like the Conservative Party is about uh, leaving the EU and indeed about referendums. He, his party membership, there's a majority for a referendum when, when, when they're polled, uh, but not, not an overwhelming uh, majority for that. So he has party management issues as well. And, but the biggest political risk, and this has always been true, is which party is going to say let's have another go at this we didn't we didn't like much like the result last time around or or they they run the risk 
of the British people thinking, well, hang on a minute, this is the party that didn't listen to us when they asked us first time around. Now, I had an interesting, read an interesting column by Roger Cohen in the New York Times this morning, and he discussed all the other times in the European Union people have had two votes. And the parties mm. have survived. Democracy has marched on. It, it wasn't a threat to anybody in the long run. It just gave the people an opportunity to change their mind. Uh, isn't that mm. the same thing true of this? Yes, I mean, that's true. There, there have been cases. Ireland is a case in point. I think France has done that. Maybe even Denmark, too, from, from memory. So it isn't uncommon. But it's been – those have been on treaties, on new sort of steps towards European integration. They've been on, you know, new powers, new arrangements, you know, sometimes on the on the euro and things like that. In and out is a very, very big question, a big question, perhaps the biggest question, isn't it? And And to say – you know, here's your chance to vote on being in or being out. And the people say, albeit by a small margin, 52-48, we want to go out. Then to say, well, sure, yeah, but what do you really think? Um, that, that, I think, is on a bigger scale. And I think political parties in other countries would regard that as similarly uh, tricky, if you to say the least, to go back to the people on that rather than on, you know, do you want these extra powers transferred or not, etc, etc. So, so in and out referendums are on a different scale, I think. Well, uh, does Theresa May have the big decision here with uh, extending Article 50 or not? Will it come down to even though she says she is not going to do that? Does she, does <laughs> she, she have to she's do not that? She's going to do a lot of things. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's it's if if you want, if a ref, if a second referendum uh, became a reality, then you'd have to do that anyway, because simply because of the timing, because uh, it's now March the twenty ninth is the date for for leaving. Uh, where where are we? January the fifteenth. You need a good three months in order to hold a referendum, partly for statutory reasons in terms of the time period, but also for organisational reasons. There has to be a process by which the question is decided. Uh, that has to be kind of consulted upon, and then obviously ballot papers are printed and everything arranged. And then a campaign period has to be allowed of eight weeks. So uh, that that would absolutely involve the extension of Article Fifty, which is the the thing. Britain invoked to say we are leaving. Uh, Europe has already indicated, and the courts in Europe have already indicated that that isn't necessarily a problem. Um, uh, but as you say, Theresa May has set a face. She may be forced to position. Uh, who knows at this point in time? But uh, there's a, there's a, there are other options potentially around some kind of customs union that perhaps would allow her to get some more Labour MPs on on side for a vote. But, you know, the, the scale of the gap between uh, her view and the view of Parliament at the moment is so enormous. And don't forget, she's meant to come back early next week to have another crack at it. Gary O'Donoghue is the BBC's Washington correspondent. He served as the BBC's Westminster correspondent for many years. Thanks a lot for joining us to talk about what's going on with uh, Great Britain and Brexit. Great pleasure. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about the El Chapo trial and the wild accusations going on there. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The trial of Joaquin El Capo Guzman has had lots of sensational moments since it started in November. But yesterday took the cake. There was an audible gasp and reporters ran from the courtroom to file stories after testimony that Mexico's former president Enrique Peña Nieto was took a $100 million bribe from Guzman. He was part of the testimony of Alex Cifuentes uh, Villa's testimony, and uh, he's a Colombian drug lord who describes himself not just as El Champo's right-hand man, but his right and left-hand man. With me to talk about the testimony is Milena Ang. She's an assistant professor at the University of Chicago and specializes in the behavior of democracy and corrupt politicians. Thanks for joining us again. Thank you so much for inviting me. I, you know, I want to ask about the universe of bribery accusations here because it's um, it's larger than just this one hundred million dollar bribe to Enrique Peña Nieto. Um, today, Cifuentes um, is ask, is talking about bribes to the Colombian military, the Colombian Air Force, uh, Colombian uh, all sorts of figures there. There's uh, the previous pre- the, another president that he's accused of uh, giving bribes to. He's uh, DEA officials are accused of getting bribes in this trial. There's all sorts of bribery going on up and down the line. Everybody is getting a bribe, according to this guy. Uh, um, the universe of this is is so large. Uh, you know, how do the drug lords have money left to do business? <laughs> Yes, I mean, I think that you're absolutely right in noting um, not only the universe of bribe accusations, which is, of course, what has been uh, transpiring in this trial, but when you think about just the mere size of drug operations, uh, you know, worldwide, but specifically drug uh, drugs flowing into the U.S. and mo- drug money flowing out of the U.S. Uh, into either Mexico or one of the um, fiscal paradises, you do realize that it's highly likely that a lot of top government officials are in cahoots, right? It's very hard to move this kind of money with no one noticing. Uh, somebody has to turn uh, you know, their eyes away. Um, so it, I actually think that, yes, not only are we learning a lot, um, but we're, we're, this also sort of you know, supports the idea that, indeed, all of this money um, – needs to be moving for this, you know, worldwide operations to continue to exist. Now, Alex Cifuentes himself, um, I think when you read the articles, you uh, there's some doubt about his credibility. He's someone who is trying to get a reduced sentence. He seems to have been caught in uh, untruths in previous trials. He looks a little... Um, squishy about some of his accusations in this trial. He seems to vacillate a little bit. Uh, do do we take this guy at his word or do we kind of, I mean, in the universe of what is the truth, um, you know, you've either got to believe what this guy's saying almost whole hog or you've got to say, well, it's not true at all. Yeah, that's a that's a, a very interesting thing to talk to talk about the credibility of this of this witness, particularly when I just said that you know it's highly likely that this that these bribes are actually moving um, around. But I think that the specific uh, accusation of the hundred million dollar bribe needs to be taken with a grain of salt. This is so the the first um, 
the first hint that we had that this was going to come up in trial was actually during opening statements, um, where El Chapo's lawyer said that, uh, you know, uh, the, the Sinaloa cartel had offered bribes, as you said, to Peña Nieto and also to the previous uh, president, Felipe Calderón, um, and other top-level officials. So that was the fact that the first hint um, at this bribe comes from um, the defense and not the prosecution, when Cifuentes is a witness for the prosecution, raises a little bit, I think, of a red flag. Uh, it is uh, interesting because here he was saying that um, the the defense is saying, well, it was someone else in the Sinaloa cartel that did the bribery. It wasn't Guzman. And now we've got a guy saying, well, it was Guzman. But everybody seems to agree that somebody has bribed the president. <laughs> that, what do you do with that? Yes, no, exactly. Uh, well, I mean, the question of what do you do with that, I I think that, um, I, I mean, sort of like thinking about, again, a little bit about the credibility of the witness, we also need to acknowledge that this is a witness that is collaborating um, with the U.S. government and with the Department of Justice, it, probably to get a reduced sentence. Uh, he's been, I think, in the in the, in the the U.S. justice system since a few years ago, 2012 or 2015. Um, so he is trying to look for a reduced sentence. It is likely that he wants to provide evidence that is going to help him in that. And so I think that this particular piece of information needs also to be understood in this scheme of of incentives um, of the accused. So that's on the one hand. And on the other hand, I think that this the question that you pose also opens up um, a different discussion, which is, okay, with this information... Who can actually act upon this, right? So who can actually investigate and determine whether there's evidence or not? Um, you know, either evidence that will start will stand up, hopefully, in a court of law or just, you know, for popular opinion um, to see if indeed there was a bribe, if there's reasons to think that there was this bribe. And of course, this would be the Mexican government. Um, and unfortunately, I do not think that at this point we can say that the Mexican government is either interested or willing in investigating these claims in depth. That leads the public, though, to believe that they're true, that the, the, the accusations are true. The, the public is left um, without a, um, you know, a legitimate denial. Yes, I mean, you're absolutely right. Um, also, th- this is not only because the investigations are not, is, not going to, is not going to be done by the Mexican government. This is also because this is not the first accusation against Peña Nieto. Um, even since uh, his campaign, he was accused of taking bribes and of basically uh, financing his campaign with uh, money that had been funneled from local state, uh, from the local uh, state resources. And then into his administration where, you know, the biggest scandal um, that surrounded him, this scandal of the purchase of a house, a multimillion dollar house in Mexico City that was apparently a kickback uh, from, you know, an an enterprise in in exchange of uh, beneficial deals with the government. And then um, continuing even yesterday uh, itself, right? So we, we heard about this bribe, but that actually obscured the earlier news of another deposition that had been happening in Mexico of another public official from um, a state government, the state government of Chihuahua, where he said that his government had had also uh, provided a beneficial illegal deal to Peña Nieto uh, and Videgaray, one of his close collaborators. So even in the same day, we see two accusations. Uh, so I, I think that absolutely the public will think that, that this is true, that it's highly likely that they do think that. But we have to understand this as one 
a particularly a particularly big one, but one of the many accusations that have been leveled against him. I'm talking with Milena Ang. She's from the University of Chicago and specializes in the behavior of democracies and corrupt politicians. And we're talking about the trial of Joaquin El Chapo Guzman, who uh, we had a $100 million bribe accused of the ex-president Enrique Peña Nieto yesterday. And uh, don't forget, we're going to be talking about the Chicago International Puppet Theater Festival in a few moments. Stay with us. Um, I I wanted to... um, you know, think this through a little more about why Mexico would not look into these charges. I mean, Lopez Obrador is supposed to be a crusading, reforming president. He was, there was some official within his orbit who was already accused of taking drug money himself in this trial. Um, what did, for your own credibility, if you believed in this thing, you would, you would make an investigation, wouldn't you? Yes. Uh, yes. Actually, I think that Lopez Obrador's position regarding investigation of particularly of high level corruption has been um, slightly erratic, I would say, uh, in that it is absolutely true. He ran and he successfully ran with a campaign that focused on anti-corruption. It's, uh, so it was pretty astonishing that he then once he had won, he said, well, you know, we're not going to be opening any investigations. We're just going to continue the investigations that have already been opened because we should just, you know, let the past in the past and we need to move to move on um and i think that there's several uh, interpretations and you know like pe- pe- people and citizens and voters in mexico are um not happy i would say that this is not necessarily a popular position uh, to just i mean because it 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 is understood as impunity right something that that was one of the main um issues during the previous administrations um but I also think that maybe Lopez Obrador, sort of like a more benign reading of his of his um, attitude, would be that Lopez Obrador is does not want to uh, win legitimacy by basically just ordering, uh, you know, the imprisonment of a bunch of high level officials. Um, this is the, imprisoning um, high level officials, at, especially at the beginning of administrations, was uh, quite a regular practice during the authoritarian years and during the. Um, previous, if you came to power with, you know, not so much uh, popular support, it would just be a very easy way to just bump up uh, your approval, right, to put one person that everybody thinks is corrupt in jail. So I think that he's trying to move away from that, or that would be, I think, a a benign reading of of what he's doing. Um, But it is, I think, uh, just a a strategic mistake. I think that it would gain, uh, he would gain a lot of support, and he would be he would start, I think, to build the rule of law that Mexicans basically elected him to build. That was the mandate that he that he had when he arrived to power. And I don't know what to say on the uh, similar side with the United States, but all this money laundering that goes on here, all the you know DEA agents that seem to be accused of things in this trial. I, there's there's a prosecutorial prosecutorial effort that seems to be lacking here too i mean if we're i don't know how we're sailing this one top guy through and and not uh, i mean there should be a whole host of prosecutions i imagine um, yes yes uh, i think that um I mean, yes, you're absolutely right. And talking about what we were uh, or going back to what we were talking about later, the extent to which um, 
the drug money touches, uh, you know, high level officials and actually medium level officials uh, as well is astonishing. And I would say that 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 is true both in Mexico and in the U.S. I don't think that I think that in Mexico, it might be more observable, but somebody has to be on this side of the border um, enabling these, you know, cocaine shipments of 5.7 tons. Somebody needs to somebody has to have seen it. Um, and I think that maybe uh, prosecuting El Chapo is, I mean, he's such, he's one of the most important drug lords. So I think that uh, the, the Justice Department might be focusing on the heads right now uh, instead of, you know, following through on all of the other uh, networks that might, you know, ramificate uh, from from there. So I think that this might just be a strategy of just focusing on one. Um, lastly, before we go, I, d- I just want to observe um, the knowledge about drug running that goes on in this trial is prolific and the tunneling, the 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 planes, the the way their cars are packed, uh, everything. We know everything about how these major drug cartels are run, running drugs. And it's not, uh, we have a government shutdown right now. Our president is telling us it's immigrants who are running drugs. And it, it is so clearly these guys who are running drugs. It's it's uh, El Chapo and these guys. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think that the, the there is a, a slight disconnect between the political speech about the causes and the roots and the mechanisms um, and institutions that enable these multi... I mean, this is a multi-billion dollar empire. It is not just, you know, uh, immigrants running through the, through the border. There has to be s- such a huge infrastructure. Um, and they're, I think that there's... They're tunneling through uh, three gates already. They're tunneling through three walls underneath them and, and the whole bit. Yes, exactly. So there, there's tunnels. Um, there's an entire airplane um, and sort of like, you know, flying in and flying out drugs uh, operation that's happening, which also puts, you know, raises some, some questions about the utility or like how useful a wall would be uh, in stopping specifically, you know, drug trafficking, which is, I think, that has been one of the reasons um, that people have, ju- have justified or that... that um, politicians have offered as a reason to build the wall. But all of these operations, they're just so large that it, it does seem like the the current strategy of um, prosecuting and trying to put all these people in jail, it, it might have to be rethought a little bit and maybe, you know, thinking more about prevention. Well, we'll have lots more to talk about as the trial goes on. I hope you'll join us again. Milana Eng is assistant professor at the University of Chicago. She specializes in the behavior of democracies and corrupt politicians. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you so much. Coming up next, we'll talk about the International Puppet Theater Festival that's just beginning in Chicago. And we'll talk about an indigenous puppet theater event that's kicking off the festival. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. 
The Chicago International Puppet Theater Festival 2019 opens tomorrow and it runs through the 27th. There are around 25 different performers from around the world. I'm excited about the opening performance. It's called A G-Jack on Turtle Island. Using life-size puppets, it tells the story of a young whooping crane separated from her family. The story is derived from indigenous wisdom. With me is co-creator Ty Defoe. He's from the uh, Oneida Ojibwe Nations of Wisconsin. Thanks very much for joining me. Hey, I'm so happy to be here. Tell me, uh, I... When I was reading about you, I said, well, I have to talk to Ty because you are um, not a just puppet theater performer. You are an all-around um, weapon in artistry. You are a musician. You are a hoop dancer. You are a flautist. You are all these things. Um, tell me a bit about yourself. Yeah, so I grew up in northern Wisconsin uh, from the Oneida and the Ojibwe nations, and you know, growing up, I think learning and being embedded and immersed in storytelling, especially oral tradition, and in ensuring that this wisdom gets to future generations to come, and also people that are interested in learning about uh, Native culture, Native people, but also using the arts all around as an interdisciplinary artist, as a tool for social change, uh, social justice, environmental justice, and really to create peace among all people and living things. You've shared in a Grammy Award for uh, Best Indigenous Recording in, in a year? Yes, this is true. This is true. And that is just, you know, by um, sticking to a mission that I have, like a life mission about uh, creating Indigenous work um, as well as uh, stories. So worked with uh, Tom Wassinger out of Silver Wave Records, and we uh, cre- created a song. It's called uh, Come to Me, Great Mystery, and it invokes uh, Indigenous vocables as well as flute playing, um, immersed with other instrumentation about living on the earth. How did you get involved with um, this theater piece and developing a G-Jack on Turtle Island? Uh, You've done it in collaboration with Ibex, the theater, a puppet theater group with uh, Heather Henson, Henson um, son of, daughter of Jim Henson. Uh, it sounds like a, a big collaboration. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, I knew Heather from living in California when I had left Wisconsin, and we met at California Institute of the Arts. And, um, you know, you just meet friends along the way. You meet artistic creators and collaborators that have the same mission and values and want to talk about specific things. And so, uh, um, you know, we went off, we did our own art, and then we met up again in New York City, and we were talking about collaborating, you know, my passion for talking about indigenous people, culture, stories, as well as environmentalism, and Heather's, of course, love and adoration for the crane, and deep work with the International Crane Foundation in Wisconsin, and we landed on uh, a G-Jack, and, you know, talking and just sort of examining the study about the land, as well as this great, significant bird, parallel the life of uh, indigenous people about the survival of not just um, the arts, but also the survivals from history's past so that we can really like pull all of this information into the future. And so what we did when we met up in New York City, we collaborated with, you know, the indigenous community there of First Nations people from many different tribal nations, including the Two-Spirit community, as well as American Indian houses. And 
we developed um, various processes to work over the time um, to really try and tell the story. And then, you know, we had many conversations talking about so many ideas, as you can imagine, when people come see the show, they'll see these like giant puppets made by the Jim Henson uh, puppet company, as well as kite flyers, as well as, you know, large mysterious puppets. People have to come see it. Miji Bijou, which is our serpent panther with copper horns, and really talking about how and how does the story want to be told in what form. So it has so many aspects to it, and it truly, um, I, can't, I can't wait to, to share it. I'm talking with Ty Defoe. He's co-creator of A G-Jack on Turtle Island. It is the opening event for the Chicago International Puppet Theater Festival 2019. And the festival runs through the 27th. A G-Jack runs just this weekend for performances. Um, It sounds really exciting. I like... um, thinking about all these different large-scale puppets, and I've enjoyed seeing the pictures of them, the, the large serpent one, um, the the crane one. How do you get skilled puppeteers for this? It's, I mean, there's, there's a bunch of people on stage operating life-size puppets. Some of them are kind of puppets themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a really wonderful question because, you know, uh, I think, you know, in terms of puppetry, you know, I was just having a conversation with someone about what puppetry is. And I think the style as well as immersing in uh, indigenous native dance about what that is, it's the idea about becoming one with the object, becoming one with the movement of how a certain puppet wants a flow or a piece of fabric. And, you know, we've definitely developed a skill over time, which I think definitely makes this piece very unique because a lot of Uh, Some of the people like in the piece aren't necessarily from a puppeteer background. Uh, They're folks that are maybe, um, you know, skilled in indigenous dance and or song. So it's truly um, an inclusive piece that incorporates everyone's skill level. Um, You know, I was tasked with this time around to write the story about it, which incorporates text. So um, definitely wrote the story around people in the community so that they can show their best talents. I think the other aspect of it too is really um, you know honing in on specific skills of puppetry um, so that we can make something like a life-size uh, turtle come to life that takes about five people to operate. Do you do this yourself as um, the co-creator, co-director? Do you, do you get up there and wing a wing a puppet around? Wing a puppet. (laughs) I absolutely do. You know, my background is in uh, eagle dancing. And so I come from the uh, Megizi clan, which is the bird clan. And so what was fascinating to me about being an artist on this piece is actually really getting in in there and operating some of the puppets. Uh, Last year when we were doing what I refer to as live drafting of the piece, we performed the piece live in front of audiences at La Mama Theater as we were developing story and some of the puppetry aspects. I was actually involved in the piece. So I got firsthand experience um, putting my hands on the puppet and figuring out how text fits in. And also some of the original score that was developed by Don Avery, uh, Larry Mitchell, and Kevin Tarrant, who's our traditional singer and drummer. Um, what that would be like if I, you know, sort of like was in the piece and then this year sort of pulling out and developing some more of the like larger pictures that we have the space available to us now to do. 
Uh, you mentioned that you collaborated with the Two-Spirit community, and I'm so interested in what's happening with indigenous arts uh, in general. There seems to be an indigenous arts explosion going on. Um, music theory, Jeremy Dutcher in Canada won uh, uh, the Best Record Award in, in Canada. Um, how, how would you describe what's going on? Oh, wow. Well, I think what it's so exciting. What's happening right now, I think, you know, growing up in the Indigenous, highly immersed in the community, to me, that was the world growing up. So I also, you know, am taking something and having people, I think people are viewing and seeing it differently. To me, I feel like it already had has been and had existed and now we're looking at things with a new lens. I think things like Standing Rock drew a huge attention to, you know, what's happening in the United States or Turtle Island about what's politically happening and I feel like people are also more tuned in to things that are happening with the environment and the earth such as our water that actually affects all people and I feel like when we place indigenous values um, within that we are starting to like take a notice that things are actually affecting everybody. So I kind of feel like people are just listening and paying attention more. That's a great answer. Um, and the two-spirit community itself, is this something that is changing or is that just something that we're paying attention more to? Well, you know, I think living in this sort of colonized society, I think that there's movements going on about decolonizing things um, uh, hugely in the arts. And arts is a tool for social change. And so I feel like that's why there's a robust movement about that. Of course, politically, we see things that are happening within uh, indigenous communities as well as a wider um, you know the wider country but I feel like the what two spirit is happening in this community is that we're able to attach language to things that you know may have been named before but there's almost like when you place a label on something there's a translation that happens so I feel like we're finding uh, language and are making sense of things that have already been there and I think two spirit is sort of almost uh, uh, an umbrella for talking about queerness and specifically what that is in the indigenous community, which I'm really excited about. I relate to spirit to not just, um, you know, I guess I relate it to shape-shifting, things that are in our oral traditions and stories, but something that is is just happening within that great circle of life. A lot of times uh, you hear... Um the trans community, it's something like uh, sexuality is on a spectrum. But yeah. I'd like the way that I, I don't I'd like the way you describe it better. <laughs> yeah, that, uh, yeah. Well, it's like, you know, talking about, you know, being trans or non-binary. The idea there is that, you know, there's gender. Gender is a construct that we're attaching language to. And it's the idea about transcending that, transcending gender, not saying that something transcending is above or below, but it it exists and that it's definitely operating within something for us as human beings who speak English are making sense of. I, I read a quote of yours, uh, the soul craves movements around these concepts of masculine and feminine that we've created. That's better than on a spectrum things. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's happening all the time um, within expression, in art making, in traits, in things that we do every single day. Uh, you've got such an interesting artistic background, and you've had so much experience in so many different fields. Uh, 
what do you how do you follow this up i mean how do you keep going what do you want to do in the future <laughs> do you you, could, you 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 can keep dancing for a while you're young enough to keep dancing you're you, you um you know, you've got a musician uh, background as well. Yeah. I Well, you know, I kind of see um, life in terms of, you know, I feel like I'm like almost like a student of life that I'm constantly learning, um, you know, about things about myself and the idea about evolving. Um, so I have this sort of like life goal about evolving, and people are like, well, Ty, what does evolving mean? And I'm, I'm thinking about that in relating to creating and stewarding a beloved community not only for two-legged people, but for four-legged, for winged, the rooted, the finned. And that's something that is a huge theme in the show that people will uh, see and hear and feel when they come. Well, I hope a lot of people get to check out uh, a G-Jack on Turtle Island. Um, It's got to be exciting to see it all come together. And um, we'll be out there four nights here with the uh, International uh, Puppet Theater Festival. And people can get more information at chicagopuppetfestival.org, uh, I believe, is the website. and Yeah, it's chicagopuppetfest.org. chicagopuppetfest.org. Yeah, and their design team is amazing. We have video projections, lighting design, costume. It's surely a remarkable piece not to be missed. Yeah, there's a little uh, clip up on the website. People can get a taste of the video aspect of this and see the colors and the different things going on. And the crane, uh, the uh, the whooping crane, which is such a cool thing. Oh, yeah. Whoop, whoop. Ty Defoe is co-creator of A G-Jack on Turtle Island. It kicks off the Chicago International Puppet Theater Festival 2019. And uh, G-Jack runs these four performances through Sunday. Great to meet you. Congratulations on everything. And we look forward to more in the future. Thank you so much. Tomorrow on Worldview, we're going to be talking with Human Rights Watch, and we'll talk about issues in East Asia. Hope you can join us tomorrow for Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Jenny Friedland for production assistance. Thanks to Shelley Steffens for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. WBEZ.